Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the 343 Podcast. My name is John Pronich, and I am your host. So before I record with any guest, I try to do some sort of pre-interview. And at the very least, I try to communicate with them about what might be on or off limits. Now in this case, Taylor Twelman and I were messaging on Twitter for several days, trying to set up a time to record. And the night before, we were supposed to talk And I sent him a message telling him that I could send over a list of my standard questions if he wanted me to. And he simply said, no need. Well, he actually said a little bit more. And the picture of that is uh, in the write-up on 343coaching.com. But anyways, uh, that strategy for him or from him could have absolutely backfired. And in fact, it has before. I've been mid-interview with multiple guests and they've asked me, "Um, can you edit that out? And that sucks. That sucks. One, because I suck at editing. And two, because the conversation is now censored. But that didn't happen with Taylor, though. We actually ended up having 60 minutes of quality conversation. In fact, I think I even surprised him by not leading with questions about Pro-Rel or how are we supposed to fix American soccer. No, instead I opted for dissecting his playing career. And for a good reason. I got the sense that Taylor had a chip on his shoulder from a very young age. And call me crazy, but I've always thought that having a chip on your shoulder is the best motivation in order to accomplish anything. So I dug deep to find out what created that chip on Taylor's shoulder. And he told me a bunch of stories. So one of those stories was that he was once labeled one of the MLS focal points by the league owners. But then later on, he found out that he was earning three quarters of a million dollars less than his counterpart, Landon Donovan. And that didn't sit well with Taylor. He told me another story about not being able to break into the first team of a German club simply because he was young and American. And that didn't sit well with him either. And then there was this story. 19-year-old Taylor Twelman, a baseball and soccer phenom, and he goes into that in detail, trust me. Uh, But 19-year-old Taylor Twelman took home the bronze boot at the U-20 World Cup. And Major League Soccer refused to offer him more than $24,000 a season if he wanted to sign with them. So Taylor followed a much different path than most professional soccer players around the globe did. But you could argue he had a pretty normal experience for an American athlete, though. He played multiple sports. He went the college route. And trust me, he is not shy about addressing any of that. In fact, during our 60-minute conversation, I never once got the impression that he would change anything about his past. Because every time that he was told no, he turned that into fuel. These days, Taylor is part of the broadcast team at ESPN. He's made a name for himself by being a little bit more critical on players and managers than some of his other colleagues there. And towards the end of our conversation... He actually says that this is one area our country can make massive improvements in. He thinks our media is soft. And Taylor, I agree. And I think most of you people listening right now, you guys probably agree as well. Now, Taylor making time to come on this show and have an authentic and real conversation that's not about transfer rumors or game recaps, I think that's a sign that he's down to spice things up a little bit. And it was my absolute pleasure to steal an hour of his day. We didn't get into a topic that I did want to talk with Taylor about, which is concussions. And 
towards the end, I uh, got him to agree to coming on the show again, which I know I've had other people agree to that as well, and that's never happened. But I do think that Taylor and I will follow up with another with another conversation about concussion stories or whatever we can remember from our concussion stories. I suffered three in quick succession when I was in high school, and I sat out the better part of a year. That sucked. And Taylor, which many of you probably know, uh, he suffered a career-ending brain injury, and he's now doing great work to bring awareness and change the social attitude towards brain injuries. And he's a great resource. Towards the end, you're going to hear him offer me help, and uh, and I'm definitely going to follow up with him and have a conversation about uh, about some of the symptoms that I still experience to this day, which is uh, uh, awesome for Taylor to to be a resource for me. Uh, all those links to get in touch with Taylor um, via Twitter or via his uh, organization called Think Taylor, um, those are available on 343coaching.com. You can check those out. And I hope you enjoy today's episode with Taylor Twelman. Give us your feedback. Tweet him. Tweet me. Let us know if, uh, if we tackled the subjects uh, that you wanted to hear. And if not, Maybe we can uh, maybe we can pressure him into coming back on the show. All right, I appreciate you guys. Enjoy the episode. Thanks. This episode of the three four three podcast is brought to you by three four three coaching dot com. Visit three four three coaching dot com for more information about our online coaching courses, our live in person coaching summits, and our players club here in Southern California. You can also dig through all of our free content, which includes articles, videos, and podcasts like this one you're listening to right now. You can find all of that plus more at 343coaching.com. That's the number three, number four, number three, coaching all spelled out, dot com. Thank you for listening to the show, and we hope you enjoy. Hello. Hey, Taylor. Hey, what's up, dude? What's going on, man? Nothing. I'm glad I figured this out. I have not used Skype in maybe five years. Dude, it's 2017. <laughs> I know. Let's get with the program. Seriously. What's going on? Not much, man. Not much. How you I, been? Uh, good, good, good. I, uh, I appreciate you uh, making time to talk to me, dude. No, my I completely dropped the ball last year because I got back from <laughs> Euros and my brother got married. Sister had a kid and then i was like you know what and when you hit me up again i was like i'm an idiot my that, that's all on me <laughs> no problem dude no problem it's funny it's it, I, the last two episodes i've tried to record so you're we're actually recording today but the one i was supposed to record yesterday has had a pretty long uh build up as well so it's nice to well, finally good. get one under under my belt so how long have you been doing this dude it's Is been it? like man probably a little more than two years Okay. So yeah. you started it after we talked. I remember uh, you and I chatted on the phone when I was driving to Bristol. That was four years ago though, right? Yeah, that was a while ago. That's Un- awesome. Unfortunately, I wasn't smart enough to start uh, wiretapping my phones then. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no. This, Are you uh, still coaching, John? Uh, currently, I'm not with a team. But I'm working with uh, with Gary at three four three, and we have a couple other programs we're looking to launch. Um, and I'm kind of behind the scenes guy right now. So, 
Awesome. What are you, um, what kind of programs, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, it's actually so cool. I get to plug our own product. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, um, we are launching a, what we're calling a players club. So we're going to try to uh, recreate the pickup soccer environment um, with a Friday night program down in Orange County. And we're actually okay. launching that next Friday. So we've, uh, we've hooked up with, uh, with a couple people that have access to a field and we're basically going to provide supervision for the kids to come out and participate in some pickup games. And then in addition to that, all the kids that sign up for the program, they also get 10, 10 sessions of personal training from one of our coaches, which would be either me or Joey or Danny people that are listening. Oh, that's would, really would know cool. These guys, who these guys are, but, um, and, uh, yeah, it's a 25 well, let program. Me know, so. Let me, cause I'm going to just let me know. Cause I, I have to do two LA. Well, two of those like international friendly games oh, at yeah. the Coliseum. And even if I'm in and out, I'll still, you know, if it's a Friday night, I can always put a tweet out there, John, that looks like, you know what I'm saying? That doesn't look like I'm just plugging it to plug it. Actually, hey, by the way, Friday night, here's what's going on in Orange County. Pretty cool program. Yeah. No, dude. That would okay, be, just let me know. You can DM me the details or whatever. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Okay. That'd be awesome. Um, how, how much time do you got? I got a solid half hour, 40 minutes. All right, cool. Cool. Uh, I mean, you know, if we're rambling and get, and having a good conversation, then – Whatever. We'll right. we'll just see where it goes. I just know two o'clock my time I gotta be off. Where uh where are you right now? I'm in Boston. Okay. Cool. Cool. Um all right, well I mean I, I have uh I mean I have some questions written down, I guess. We can we can start there. Uh, yeah. But, Why don't we uh, start there? Let's uh let's see. I guess be just because of the time thing. I want to try to have you give like a quick overview of your youth career and take us up to your last season at Maryland, if you could. Cool. When are you taping right now? I've been since the start. (laughs) Okay. Oh, cool. I didn't know if we were. Okay, perfect. You didn't say anything bad either. That was good. No, no, that's good. Um, So my youth career started. So my father played in the NASL for uh, seven, eight years, then, it, then played a little indoor. So he had a 10 year career. I was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota when he was playing for the kicks, lived in Chicago, whatnot. Both of my parents grew up in St. Louis. And so I spent pretty much from, I want to say third, third grade on in, uh, Chesterfield, Missouri, uh, fourth grade on, sorry, Chesterfield, Missouri. And so I played every sport, John. I played basketball, a uh, ton of basketball, a ton of baseball. Um, I'll get into that in a little bit and uh, played some golf. But my father did not believe in me playing the same sport uh, under the age of 13 all year. He believed he wanted me to find my own niche. Um, I, you know, my mom's dad, my grandfather played pro baseball for 19 years won a couple world series with the Yankees. My uncle was on the PGA tour. So he didn't want to, and I'm not saying that to brag. It's just to give you perspective. It wasn't like we sat at the dinner table and only talked one sport. My father played college baseball along with college soccer. So 
at that time, there was a club called Scott Gallagher. But before that, it was um, – oh, and I'm drawing a blank. It began with an A. And it was a construction company that was then turned over, and it was Scott Gallagher in fourth, fifth grade for me. On that team was Pat Noonan. Uh, Brad Davis was on the younger age team. And I played probably uh, 16 to 20 games a year and one tournament. And then I stopped playing. I went and played baseball. Uh, seventh grade, Scott Gallagher, uh, coached by the name of Tommy Howe, um, told my father that if Taylor doesn't play soccer for 10, 11 months a year, he's just not going to make it. I quit soccer. Uh, I played about 80-some-odd basketball games that year, uh, played a ton of baseball. And then eighth grade, I, I went to my dad and I said, Dad, I – I miss it. I miss the game. I want to play again. And, and he said, that's all I needed to hear. So that's that age group of Scott Gallagher. And at that time to the listeners right now, there wasn't six, seven, eight teams per age group. There was one team. And if you made that team, your parents had to work bingo night three times a year to pay for it. It only cost my parents and I say only, but think of that at the time in their early nineties, it didn't cost them five grand a year. It cost them 250 to 600 bucks. If you throw in uniforms and whatnot. Um, so I played eighth grade, um, after eighth grade, um, I then went to high school and I made varsity high school, baseball, soccer, freshman year and JV, uh, basketball. And Tommy Howe said, if Taylor doesn't play soccer, you know, and he was running Scott Gallagher at the time, if he doesn't play soccer year round, he can't play. So John, I quit select soccer at that time, travel soccer, uh, played high school, uh, junior, my freshman, sophomore, junior year. Um, I scored about, I'd say 90 to hundred goals. I think, I don't know what that, anyways, I scored a ton of goals and there was a scout for us soccer by the name of Tim Carter. Uh, he called U.S. Soccer and said, "Listen, the kid's not playing select. He's not a travel player, but he can score goals. Bring him in." Uh, I got called up to the under-17 national team, and in my first game, scored two goals. Uh, and the rest is history. Um, so it's a unique road, John, uh, up to Maryland. That took me to Maryland because the assistant coach of the under-17 national team was Sasha Zarovsky. Uh, I was actually being recruited on a full ride to play baseball at Maryland. So it just coincided. Both coaches wanted me to play my freshman year. Um, I really wanted to go to UCLA. My uncle went to UCLA, uh, but Ziggy Schmidt didn't want me to play baseball. And the baseball coach at UCLA didn't want me to play soccer. That's how I ended up in Maryland. And then it went to the under 20 world cup and I scored four goals, won the bronze bronze boot. And I had an offer from Bronby or 1860 Munich. I chose Germany because one, the money was better at the time on the initial contract, but two, um, I really needed, <laughs> how do you say this? I needed a rude awakening. And for whatever reason, subconsciously, I think I knew Germany was going to give that to me. And after the 98 World Cup, the American player was viewed as, as a scrub. Um, and so that's where it is, John. If you want me to stop there or I can go through the reserve team, that stuff, it's up to you. Well, I have a couple questions about like the actual decision to go to Germany. 
Yes, so, of course. Uh, so you you wrap up at U twenty at the U twenty World Cup, and there was obviously international interest and in, in trying to get you trying to get you signed, but no domestic interest. It sounds like so like no MLS teams after you. There, like, there, no, there was five MLS teams that went after me, but for whatever reason. And this is why my relationship with Major League Soccer did. I, I never understood it. Uh, it was very complicated, very convoluted. They did not want to sign me. And you can ask any of those people that were involved at the time. They'll deny it now, but I remember the conversations. The fact that a non-U.S. soccer youth player just went to the World Cup and won a bronze ball while playing baseball really bothered people. Hmm. It really, really bothered people that an athlete can go show up there. When I didn't do the Olympic ODP programs, I didn't do select programs. I didn't do any of the national team tryouts. It really rubbed people the wrong way. And so here I was at the table with Bronby, 1860 Munich. And I think if I'm not mistaken, Freiburg, who at the time was a second Bundesliga team and a couple teams from England, but I had no permit. So that already was an easy decision. Uh, Major League Soccer offered me $24,000 a year. Ooh, big money. And it, yeah. They offered, <laughs> but at the time, it was the Ben Olsen Project 40 contract. And Ben Olsen had the best one. So, John, the reality was if I played five games, it turned into 50 grand. If I played 10 games, it turned into 75. So all I had to do was show up, but they signed Chris Albright, who was not playing for the under twenties, who was coming off the bench, starting coming off the bench during the world cup. They signed him to a $750,000 signing bonus. Hmm. And that's where my, so to answer, listen, I, you know, whether or not that implicated my relationship with Bruce Arena down the road, who was a Virginia guy, and Chris Albright was a Virginia person, and, and, and I was a Maryland guy that played baseball. You know, in the soccer world, I specifically remember everywhere outside of the United States, I was highly regarded and thought at to be a good prospect for the future, yet here I was told I was an athlete. I wasn't a good soccer player. It was really weird. And so that kind of shaped my um, upbringing, so to speak. But it always had been there. In fairness to everyone, John, that started at age 12 when Scott Gallagher was telling me, no, he can't play baseball. He's never going to make it. And you know what? One thing I've never thought of before, maybe I, I've just never had the, the situation or the story told like you've told it, but how international – teams might look at a, a three sport athlete or something like that. I've never, I've never thought about that question before. Yeah. I think it depends on the age. Like, like if I would have had that conversation with Bronby or 1860 Munich at 22, 23, they would have probably said I was done. Right. But I was, I was 18, just turned 19. Perfect timing, you know, still young. Um, some of my coaches, Wolfgang Sunholtz played at Bayern Munich, played in the NASL. He uh, spoke very highly of me. At that age, he was the under-20 assistant coach. Um, but when I went over to sign with 1860 Munich, I literally, my agent got a call from Bayern Munich that day and said, don't sign the deal, and I had already signed the deal. Um, so I don't think they looked at it, John. As, as 
I, I think it was just timing as, as life is. But I think if I was 22, I don't think the European scouts would have said, no, he, he's got it. I think I would have been past that great age discussion that we're having in the United States right now of a, what really is a young player and what isn't. Yeah, and, and man, this, this conversation can go a million different ways. Um, I guess one question that pops into my head, and, and I want to make sure I ask this. So at 20 years old, you're at the U-20 World Cup. You're, you're a Maryland player. Uh, did, you, did you have the idea going into that world cup that you would be leaving that world cup with professional contracts on the table? No, no, I didn't. John, great question. So, um, and I was young, so this was the, so I was actually only 19. I was on the younger side of that under 20 team. Um, I actually, so right before the under 20 world cup in that freshman soccer season, I turned down a professional baseball contract from the Kansas city Royals. And I didn't know, this is now me speaking to you as a 37 year old in 2017. But at the time I didn't know that was me making a decision about pro soccer, if that makes any sense. Yeah. But obviously, you know what I mean, John, obviously me turning down that deal and then never playing baseball in a regulation game for university of Maryland. That means subconsciously at that point, I was like, no, no, wait, I got to give up soccer. I can't give up soccer. I went to the under 20 world cup. Ziggy Schmidt literally told me who was mad at me. Now keep in mind, I did not go to UCLA cause I wanted to play baseball. Ziggy had to call university of Maryland's baseball coach and say, he will go to the under 20 world cup for him to redshirt his freshman year. That had to, I, I know that drove Ziggy nuts. I didn't play for the under twenties, John, the entire four months leading up to it. <laughs> Ziggy played me at right midfield, left midfield, and off the bench. He played Chris Albright and a guy by the name of Luchi Gonzalez, who's done a phenomenal job with FC Dallas's academy. And it came down to making the final cuts. He didn't take Luchi Gonzalez. He pulls me aside and said, you're starting against England. It was the weirdest, oddest motivation I've ever seen. Um, so to answer your question, no, I did not go to the under-20 World Cup with – a pro contract of mine. I went to the under 20 world cup to say, I'm going to play no matter what I do. I'm going to play and find a way to score goals. I did it at the under 17s. And I was like, you know what? I'll do it. If I have to be a reserve and do it, that's fine. Uh, but I ended up starting playing games and, um, that's how it all really started. And at, at what point did you, did you realize I guess like this is real. Like I'm, I'm going to become a professional soccer player and I have to get an agent. I have to do all this other stuff. Like when, when did you switch into professional mindset? I guess. Ooh. Um, well, it was our last group stage game. We're playing Cameroon and the whispers were a bunch of scouts were there to watch. Um, it was the right winger for Cameroon. I'm drawing a blank on his name right now. And People, you know, and everybody was talking, you know, I remember Tim Howard, Nick Romando, uh, Danny Califf, you had all those Steve Turundolo, you had all these guys on our team. We had a great team, a fun team too. And everybody's talking about it in the back of my head. I said, wait a minute here that all you need is scouts in the room. All you need is scouts in the stadium. Anything could happen. So I scored two goals that game. Um, and after that we won, uh, we, <laughs> We got a, we got a round of 16 was against Spain, which that team was an absolute joke. 
Casillas, Puyo, you can go up and down the line. That team was <laughs> unbelievable. Um, and I had a bunch of interviews, and I had a call. Hey, uh, wait, 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 wait. How'd you guys, how'd you guys do in that game? I don't know the result of that game. Cameroon, we won 3-1. We played Spain in round of 16. We're down 3-0, 27, 30 minutes in. Come in at halftime, and all of us are like, what the heck just happened? Um, it's like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It's hot as heck. And in a weird way, this is the great group we had. And you even saw it as a lot of these guys old. We, we were competitors. We're like, listen, this isn't, this is not how we're going out. Uh, we came out in the second half. I scored. Um, and then I want to say 80, 83rd minute, John, I missed a breakaway. Uh, I was in balls knocked over the top. Keeper came off the line. I bent it around him, hit the outside of the post or just went wide and I was like, no. And then, and then I scored. Now we're three, two. Um, we had it. We had it. They did absolutely nothing after going up three, zero. Um, we had it. Uh, and ironically, everybody goes, well, you scored two goals against Puyo. And yet I remind everyone, I missed the one chance I should have probably put away. <laughs> and that- then after, so after the Cameroon game to finish the, the story though, to, that's where I had, I had a voicemail from a guy speaking Danish, no idea who it was. Um, and it was a, a Danish agent representing Bronby's interest. I didn't find that out until obviously I got back to the United States. Uh, and you know, a bunch of people were calling the house and whatnot. Um, so that's when I knew to answer your question. Yeah, that's, uh, that's always kind of like an interesting question. I like to ask people because now I think the movement is to is to get the kids in the academies and to identify you know with a one sport that they want to play at a young age and and I think kids have an idea of of you know if they want to try to go for it at a, at a much younger age than than before. But I can only I can only speak to that from a soccer standpoint. I can't speak to that from a basketball or from a from a, from a baseball standpoint because I didn't play those sports. No, but John, it's a great point though. Don't you think it's our society too? Times have changed. I mean, how many 16 year old basketball players are being touted as the next LeBron James, LeBron James and Kobe Bryant completely changed that thought. You know what I mean? You look at what LeBron James has done. And so I, I think you're hundred percent right. I think it's all sports. Everyone say Bryce Harper on the cover of sports illustrated at age 14, you know? So I, I think it just w- with me growing up, and with my mom's side of the family being all pro athletes in non-soccer sports and my dad's side having three NASL players and a minor league baseball player on that, I just don't think anyone ever thought I would take soccer serious when the reality is it was and still is the love of my life on that. I just didn't make that decision soon enough. When it, and I'd still sit here, John, and tell you that if I would have made the decision at 14 – and been told how to make a proper run as a center forward, told how to play off a back shoulder, told how to play in the middle part, you know, middle part of the field. Oh, it, it would have been different. Oh, I don't, I don't, so I, I think, I think I understand what you're saying with this then. So you're saying if you would have went into like the Scott Gallagher and, and went full time and had, had regular coaching and, and, and whatnot, that would have impacted your playing career differently. Yeah, John, no doubt about it. Now, I'm not going to say to you, I will say this, though, and I say this every single time, the passion and competitiveness I have, 
way too many of my friends that played Scott Gallagher and used soccer their entire lives, they didn't have what I had. I would do anything and everything to win that freaking game. And so I think that came from me and my dad raising me that every game was as, as if it was your last game. Baseball, basketball, football, soccer didn't matter. But it, what I'm saying to you is the technical aspects of that, my dad stayed out of it. He didn't want to ruin our relationship. I didn't learn how to make a run as a center forward until Wolfgang Sunholtz saw me run as an 18-year-old. So the Josh Sargent that is in the exact same situation or a Will Bruin that was in St. Louis, Will Bruin was more of an all-sport guy, but Josh is Josh played all sports. The, the, the educated people at that age now, it's light years than where it was when I was playing. And that wasn't that long ago. But they, we, uh, the knowledge of people in the sport, John, and, and what I mean by that is not, you know, for when I grew up, it was all based on, do you, you know, did he play? And then if someone had an accent, everyone thought, well, they played. <laughs> when you and I both know, they probably played in the eighth division in England in a pub league, but they had an accent. And that still actually exists. But, John, you know, you – in 1993, you didn't exist, if that makes any sense. I'm, I'm curious. Did, do you think that you and your dad or your family did anything, like, culture-wise outside of maybe, like, sports or, or something, like, the way that he – the way that you were raised? Was anything different than, like, your friends or the other guys oh, yeah. like Scott Gallagher? Is it, yeah. I anything mean, when specific we talk- that jumps out? It's a great question. It's so good. I mean, we could talk about this. I could talk about this for an hour because I believe very, my passion is in this because I, what we're losing in our country right now is what my dad actually taught me. And that's character. And I'm not talking about shaking a hand after it's, it's having a passion for when the whistle blows, you do anything and everything to win the game. You have a personality. He wanted a personality out of me. Now, if I showboated, or if I did certain things to show up the opponent, my dad wanted nothing to that. But if I went hard into a tackle and pushed a player and got into it and, and showed real passion and competitiveness, that's what it was. Because when you went in my backyard, he showed that to me. And I, and I grew up watching it. My brother, who was a heck of a player, who went on to Stanford, all left-footed, could have signed with MLS. He chose the Stanford education route was more important to him. And then tore both ACLs, but that was my younger brother. So, John, when we went in the backyard, if shin guards are not, there was blood. So the one thing he taught me more than anything is when the whistle blows, you win. Whatever you have to do to win, you have to do it. And then the whistle blows for the end of the game. You shake the opponent's hand no matter who it is, what the game is, because you respect the game. And the one thing he said to me that I'd still – to this day stands out is the moment you think you're bigger than the game, it bites you in the ass and it's over. (laughs) And I, and if I was a coach, I'd remind all these young guys that think they're on top of the world. Listen, there's a fine line because you want that chip on your shoulder. But the moment you think you're bigger than the game, there's going to be a next messy. People think I'm nuts saying that John, there will be a next messy. Messi's not bigger than the game. People thought Maradona was bigger than the game. Pele, Cruyff, their legacies are something that may go 
unmatched, but there's always another player that's thriving in their craft and going to be better than you. So you might as well maximize that opportunity. No, I, I, I agree 100%. Um, I want to, I want to keep trying to plug through your career. So a couple of years in, in, in Germany, back to the United States with new England and uh, what was it like a eight or nine year career? Yeah. Some, in, in yeah. MLS? Yeah. I probably played. Yeah. I mean, the career lasted from Oh two to, to 2010, but, uh, from the middle of, you know, from the end of 08 to 2010, that was just concussion related and trying to heal. Um, John, I think something that would be interesting and is the German way. And, and I don't, I, people think I regret going to Germany. I, it was the best decision of my life. Um, because when I left the under 20 world cup and, you know, then all of a sudden MLS and you want to sign project 40 and all this, I needed to go somewhere. And I remember going to Germany my first couple days and in my first, um, 11 v 11 scrimmage. I scored a couple goals and it, it, everything went well. But the moment I signed the contract, they handed me five first team players, their shoes that I had to shine for five, the first six months. And here I am sitting there going, wait a minute. I well, guys, don't you know, I won the bronze boot. Like what do you wait? What? And then I see the best German German under 21 player doing the exact same thing. I was like, well, okay. All right. But where it went awry for me was the first season and this existed and people, you know, this is 1999, 2000 for people to have reference of where the American player was at the point. But John, I led the reserve team in goals. So here I was told you produce, you get rewarded at the end of the first season. I got to meet the assistant coach and the first team head coach, Werner Laurent. And he looked like a, he had huge white hair. He looked like a lion and we were the lions. Right. And so I go in there and he right away, it didn't even take two seconds. He said, you're too young. You're American. I have to wait until you're 24. So you've got real experience. And so that is where I grew up because what I didn't understand is that the same under 21 German player who was my front runner, who only had five goals, he got called up to train with the first team. And so then I, I, I grew up because what I realized was no matter what you do, sometimes you're not in someone's plans. And so that is where this thing started to turn for me of saying, I want to play. I don't care where it is. The second season, I led the reserve team in goals again. And at the end of the year, that's where I was told, no, we just, we, you know, you're, you're not this, you're not that. And I said, hold on here. I'm at 25 plus goals in two seasons for you. That's the most of anyone on the reserve team. I don't just let me train. I'm not, and it wasn't just for the listeners at home. It wasn't a contra contractual discussion. I was asking for an opportunity to train with the first team. This is exactly around the time of the Olympics with Clive Charles and the two and the world cup team. And I saw Bruce arena start to call in 
a Chris Albright, guys my age. Landon Donovan got called in. He was playing a division lower than me in Germany in the fourth division. But he was going through something very similar. So I reached out to Steve Torundolo, who's a teammate of mine, and he was at Hanover, and he said, you need to understand, your coach is East German, your ownership's East German. You've got your hands full, Taylor. So whatever your agent told you about. So he gave me some perspective. And then, John, I was pulling up the training, and I've never – there was a pub at 1860 Munich's training, a restaurant slash pub. And I saw – there was 100 people in the pub, and they were coming out of the door. September 11th happened. And everyone was there, players, owners, fans. We were all in there watching those two planes going to the World Trade Center. And I remember – Two things that came across my mind. First and foremost was my aunt and uncle lived in New York. And this is at a time where text messaging wasn't in the United States. I had a calling card for cell phones to call back to the States. And then I saw two Eastern Europeans laughing. I waited till they got to the locker room. Those two players, one of them I hadn't, I had by the throat. I had never been someone that started a fight. I'd never been someone in a physical confrontation. I honestly have no idea what went over me. And I got in and they were laughing. And I knew because I spoke a little German and was learning once a week with, you know, a center back that was taking me and all that. Anyways, that's a sidebar. But they, they were basically saying America deserved it. And it, that's where my patriotism, whatever you want to call it, came out. Um, the owner called me up. The general manager called me up. They said, we are going to tell the team you've been fined. You are not fined. And I said, hold, hold, no, find me if I'm fine. They're like, no, 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 no. You had every right to do what you did. And I said, well, let me ask you guys a question. Why did the first team not wear black armbands last night? John, we were the only club in West Germany Keep in mind, West Germany, even though it wasn't West Germany, the west part of Germany that did not honor the September 11th victims. That is where I made the decision. I'm leaving 1860 Munich. Kaiser offered me a deal. The owner said, and the general manager at the time, who was a great South African, um, who was so compassionate, he never understood why I was never given the first team. He constantly was pushing me because he said you just you have one thing that can't be taught and for whatever it is you score goals and he said the only way i can let you out of this current contract because i had three years left on a six-year deal five-year deal excuse me well no sorry it was two and a half left of a five-year deal so because i was there two and a half years he said is i'll let you go back to major league soccer uh made the decision ziggy schmidt bob gansler wanted me to come back to MLS. Uh, Bob Gansler came over, watched me play two reserve games. He had a discovery on me for a solid year. He kept calling me saying, just come back. I'll play you. You're going to score a ton of goals here. Um, I couldn't come back. Bob and Ziggy, ironically of all people, um, wanted me at LA and they were both told because Taylor did not sign after winning the bronze ball, the only way he can come back is to make $24,000. And these are the only three bonuses he gets. 
And John, I had such a chip on my shoulder and I didn't care. My chip on my shoulder was about America and my family. September 11th, it sculpted who I was. And I, that moment that I was like, I want my dad to go to all the games and watch me play. I want to wear red, white, and blue. I don't care about anyone else. I signed that contract and <laughs> after scoring eight goals in my first nine games, MLS said, well, he's not a rookie. He came back from Germany. And I was like, wait a minute, you've got a bonus in my contract for rookie. League. So anyways, that's how, uh, yep. I played, uh, in MLS and that's how it was. Now, now obviously your decision to come back and, and that story is very emotional and, and, um, you were a young guy, I'm not trying to say you made a, made a bad decision, but I guess where I'm going with this is that it sounds like MLS was also still being kind of like emotional, like almost like a teenage girl, like, Oh, like he, he blew us off last time. Like, here's what he gets this time. Did, did you get that feeling from them? Yes. Oh, no doubt about it. And even and by the way, major league soccer at the time, you know, now would tell you they didn't handle that situation correctly. Because if you remember, Robbie Rogers came back, Corey Gibbs came back. There was a bunch of players that came back that were treated completely differently. So I think in fairness to major league soccer, John, they learned because what happened was, and it wasn't a good look on on MLS was at the all-star game. The USA today wrote that story that I just told you. And so then MLS cup that year, Carlos Ruiz and the LA galaxy are taking on us and the revs. And the story of how Ziggy wanted me, didn't get me. So he then got stuck. (laughs) I always say stuck. Carlos dies laughing with Carlos Ruiz and the, you know, so that year we have, it wasn't, it wasn't a good look for major league soccer in Oh two, but I think they had bigger concerns with relegation of Tampa and Miami, you know, that kind of stuff, as opposed to whether or not they handle my contracts. Right. But I wasn't going to let that stop me from playing. If that's what you're asking me. No, I, I guess uh, I, I think you had made up your your mind, and really the one the one option that was on the table for you just happened to be kind of like a shitty deal. And no there, doubt about it. And there, no doubt about it. And there was really no nothing else you could do about that. And where my brain is going now, it's almost like they're they flipped the script completely, and they're almost overcompensating now to bring guys back. Yeah, I overcompensate. Yeah, it's a good, it's a God, that's such a good, I wouldn't say overcompensating, but of course you, how can I say that? And then the Michael Bradley, Josie Altador contracts, even Alejandro Bedoya's contract. Yeah. I mean, of course that fits what you're saying. <laughs> um, I, it's interesting, you know, the, I don't know if they'll ever on the record say they'll do the Josie and and Michael Bradley contracts again. Uh, That was a going into the 2014 world cup. They wanted the leaders of major league soccer to be playing and and Clint Dempsey for, but Clint is different because he was at the end of that career. Anyways, I don't consider his contract on the same level as Michael and Josie because those two were in the prime of their career. Um, have you ever talked to either of those guys personally about that? Oh yeah. We figured the one thing, John, and I know I, you know, in my broadcasting, I am sure I bother, I give real opinions. So the, I give honest opinions and how I believe and what I feel. 
So when I speak to those players, they, they all can come to me and say, Taylor, we just don't agree with you, but they all know it's from my heart. It's not contrived. It's not made up. So yeah, I've spoken with Michael and Josie and, and quite honestly, I've spoken to Jurgen. I've spoken to numerous people. Not a single soul told me that they would have not taken the Josie or Michael Bradley deals to go back to major league soccer as a, as a player. Like they'd be crazy to pass that up. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, of course. Absolutely absurd. Of course. I mean, that amount of money, you just can't. And, and the one thing I've always respected about Michael, and I have a closer relationship with Michael than I do maybe with Josie, but Josie and I have had great conversations about more of playing as a center forward than we have about raising families and certain things like that, right? But um, as Michael looked at it as a challenge, he knew exactly what people were going to talk about. He knew exactly uh, how many people were going to be quote unquote pissed. Um, the amount of money obviously made it a no brainer, but he also looked at it as an opportunity to prove people wrong. And the one thing he and his dad have always done, they've always had this chip on their shoulder to prove people wrong, whether it's playing ping pong in the backyard (laughs) or, you know what I mean? Playing cards, whatever they're doing, they've always had that mentality. Why do you bring up the overcompensation? Is is there a question or is there no, no, I, bring it, up? I, it was just, it, it was kind of where my brain was at is that it, it seemed like MLS at the time. So like that 2001, 2002 timeframe where, where you were wanting to come back. Yeah. Landon as well. We were identical time, almost identical times. Landon just came back six months earlier. So how did, how did they treat Landon then? Cause this will, this will shape the way that I kind of, I go with the rest of that. Oh, they treated Landon. A thought, you know, 180 degrees differently than so Landon kind of got the red carpet and, and you got the shaft. He didn't kind of get the red carpet. I think you got a <laughs> private. I think you got a private jet flown in for him. <laughs> okay, so I but mean, if so- you remember, though, in fairness to Landon, I mean, this is a kid out of the under 17 World Cup where he and Beasley dominated, mm-hmm. right? So he he. I actually thought Landon deserved it. What I was confused on, John, is why I was viewed as, and still am when you talk to those coaches of the time, as an athlete, not a soccer player. I'll never understand that. Even though I just described to you for the last 30 minutes, of course I was an athlete. But I still had a purpose. Every time I put on a soccer uniform, I still had a purpose. I still scored goals. So that's why it just... There was always a there was always an asterisk next to my name, and if you ever got my dad on the podcast, he'll tell you from the <laughs> moment I said that I was considering playing baseball in college or as a pro, that's where the entire mentality changed for me as a soccer player and the, how scouts viewed me. You know, and yet, there was a guy by the name of Steve Highway from Liverpool that came over and saw me play in a game. And he said to my dad, I was 14 at the time in eighth grade. He said, if he can get to England right now, he'll be be a goal scorer for the rest of his life over there. And Steve Highway was running Liverpool's Academy. Do you ever, do you ever wonder what it would be like if you would have went that route? Not at that time, but John, I'll tell you right now, I'd be lying to all your listeners and you that there's not every single time I walk into a stadium or watch it, what it would have been like playing in England. And 2007, at the end of that year, uh, when I knew I got my permit and Bob Bradley was a huge uh, 
force behind that. Um, I was going into a contract year with MLS and he asked me and I said, I will have regrets if I never play in England. And he goes, then we need to get you your permit. And the moment I got my permit, Newcastle, uh, Preston North End, Everton, uh, there was Reading, I think was another one. They all came over, watched, called. My agent told me. Um, I just, I looked at it and just, I watched that league on TV. And whether it was the championship or the, or, or the EPL, I just needed to get over there. Because I knew if I got over there into a league that whipped balls into the box and wanted a Alan Shear type of player, because Alan Shear was the guy I watched more than any other forward in my adolescent career of learning. I didn't watch Thierry Henry. It was pointless for me to watch Thierry Henry because I wasn't, I didn't play like him. But when I watched Alan Shear and Rude Van Nisselrooy, those two, but Alan Shear more importantly, 5'10", can jump out of the gym, win headers, simple, never loses the ball at his back to goal. John, I, I, to this day, I always wonder what would it have been like. And you, you had a couple offers on the table, right? Or maybe you didn't. Maybe it was just, maybe it was just talk. No, I did. Okay. I, I have the emails. I have, I printed out the paper. I still kept them. <laughs> Framed um, them, everything on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I'm totally kidding on that. But it, uh, <laughs> in 05, I had a offer from a team in Norway. Um, it was just over a million dollars. And this goes into, I can lead you into my MLS discussion at the time. I had a discussion with Sunil Galati and Jonathan Kraft. And I said, I, I have absolutely no problem playing with the revolution for the rest of my life. I just, why is Landon Donovan and Carlos, no, is Eddie Johnson? Sorry. Why are they being paid six times what I'm being paid? And Sunil, I remember this Sunil and had told me and my agent, listen, if you, it's all about your market value. And I respected that. It was an honest answer. So I got an offer in 05 for just over a million um, transfer fee. Uh, I didn't want to go to Norway, but it was, it was Everton was secretly trying to get me over there because they were driving a lot of this with my agent. Um, and then at the end of 07, I got a $3 million offer, which at the time would have been the second largest transfer fee for any MLS player buying Clint Dempsey to Preston North End. And you, the manager at the time was Alan Irvine, who had a real strong connection with Everton. And I remember asking Brian McBride, Eddie Lewis, Joe Max Moore. They all said, listen, Preston North End, you do it. You go over there, do exactly what you're doing right now. Score goals. Just be yourself and, and you'll move on. Because remember, Eddie Lewis and, and Brian McBride, that's exactly the move they did. Did you say no to that move or did MLS say no? MLS said no to that move. How'd that make uh, you, how, how, how do you react to that? Well, my reaction was this. If you say no, then you have to increase my current or you have to give me something. And at the time, uh, the listeners are going to hate me because I'm bringing in another sport. But at the time, Les Miles was the college football coach for LSU. And Michigan offered him a buyout. LSU gave him a three-year extension and a raise. So what I said to MLS is, how do you, and Sunil Galati and Mike Burns, I said, I have no problem. I understand it's a business. But how do you tell me no? 
but I don't get anything on the, on the other side of that. Now I'm just, now I'm pissed. Now I'm disgruntled. I completely understand. And the, the problem was in the 06 final, 05 final, excuse me, this is what started it all was three owners, Robert Kraft, Phil Anschutz, and the third, if I'm not mistaken, was someone in New York. It was one of the, because Red Bulls weren't there yet. It was, anyways, said this league is built around this MLS Cup final, two Americans, Landon Donovan and myself. Landon was making a million. I was making 150 grand. That's what started this. I didn't understand that. You have three owners that literally just put me into the same discussion. So, John, that's where this whole th- whole discussion started. Because at that time, and what the listeners don't know, we didn't know each other's salaries the way we do now. And even the salaries now are a little complicated, but it's more in the ballpark. But we didn't know that. So when my agent at the time said, yeah, Landon's making right around a million, Eddie Johnson's making 700, I was like, hold on here. <laughs> so that's where that started. Because at, at, at that point, too, you weren't just the young guy. You weren't, you weren't the new kid on the block either. That was you know, three, four years no, into your MLS career. Yeah, it was 02, 03, 04, 05. So it was four years in. Yep, 100%. So, but that's it. But I understand the business, John. And that's part of growing up in a, in a, in a household where it was all pro athletes. I knew it was a business. I knew it. Just be honest, be straightforward. That's the one thing I've, sometimes it gets me in trouble, but I'd rather know the truth than to beat around the bush. So when Sunil told me it's all about your market value, I actually wasn't upset. I go, I get that. Totally get it. No problem. I'm going to score 20 goals this year. My contract's going to end. You're going to either have to pay me or I'm going. And he goes, no problem. He goes, we'll worry about it at that point. So Sunil was straightforward at that point. The problem I had was when the Preston North End deal came in, I think they were surprised. It was only a million dollars less than Clint Dempsey, John. And for a player of my caliber that hadn't played in a World Cup yet, was three years older than Clint, two years older than Clint, I think it threw Major League Soccer for a little bit of a, of, a, of a tizzy. And that was also the same time when they said no Americans will be designated players. Hmm. And I said, okay, well, that makes no, no sense. And then they did a deal with Landon, and, and, and that's, so that's how it went. Um, and then 08, I got punched in the face, and my career was over. So... But it would have been a difficult situation with me in New England because I felt like I was being straightforward and honest, and I didn't understand why that wasn't coming back. Now, Taylor, I, I know we're going to get crunched for time here pretty quick. I want to ask one more follow-up question to, to that that story, and I, I do want you to uh, be able to talk about. I got about fifty. I got twenty more minutes. No problem. Okay, cool. Um, so my, my my question that I had in in my head. While you're telling this story, you're saying you're having this conversation with Sunil and with Kraft and your agent. I'm curious what Sunil's role was in that. If that was an MLS conversation, then why was he at the table? Because uh, he was running. He ran the refs. He was president of soccer operations for 
the crafts. Got it. Okay. So that and was Neil and I have always had a, we still to this day, a very, very honest, straightforward, uh, great relationship. I consider him a, a, a friend because we've had honest discussions and he's been there since I was 16. <laughs> he was there at the under 17 world cup. He was there at the under 20 world cup. He's always been there, you know? So, um, and he always, I think, respected me enough that, and still to this day, we can have great discussions, real ones, which I appreciate. And listen, it's still a business decision. I just think, and by the way, they did very well by me, John, when I got my concussion uh, and was fighting to try to get fit and fighting to stay healthy and keep the career alive. They never once thought about throwing me aside. They never once so it, it came back tenfold with how they treated me with the injury and gave me the resources to find the answers. So it, I just tell the story because that is my story, but there's actually no, I don't go to bed at night, John. I don't tell the story. There's no bad blood, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's interesting. I, I, and I'm not dropping names, but I spent the 2014 world cup sitting with Ruud van Nisselrooy and Michael Bollock and, Gilberto Silva and Roberto Martinez, all these names, they all have similar stories. They all have their own stories, their own versions. It's just different levels. It's different magnitudes. It's different numbers. But Ruud Van Nistelrooy, I, I remember him getting real pissed talking about one of his moves in his career and something that didn't happen. So it, it, it's my story. Um, I think MLS has... And this is, MLS has really grown on how they handle these, John. And I know on the outside it may not look that way, but compared to how they handled 1999, I'd say to 2007, eight, they're, it's much it, through experience, like all of us, they're uh, much more, I think, equipped to handling those discussions than they were in years past. Are, are you able to give an example, like a good example of how maybe things have changed? Can you think of one off the top of your head? Yeah, I'm trying to think of a player that would has made it known public, you know, with a good <laughs> – you know what I mean? I I'm gotcha. trying to think. So I don't want to get anyone in trouble I with gotcha. it. Um, you know what's so funny? While, while you're thinking, I'll tell you a little story. So I'm, I've been reaching out to people, trying to get them on the podcast, and one of the – one of the, the frequent responses I get is like, you know, I totally would, man, but you guys over there, you're kind of edgy, so <laughs> I don't want to get edgy? in trouble. <laughs> you know what's weird? I don't – I don't – edgy is the wrong word. <laughs> I wouldn't describe you guys as edgy at all. Well, yeah. This is – it's interesting. <laughs> now, edgy is the wrong – listen, in this day and age of social media, I understand why they would say edgy. But the issue I have is no one – why can't we have a discussion? Why can't we have – why can't it just be open and just have a discussion? And this isn't mm-hmm. just an MLS thing. It's also on the other side. You try to talk promotion, relegation, and open markets, and sometimes, John, you can't even – no one can have a good discussion. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But I don't I – don't, to go back on I just don't see you guys as being edgy. I think you guys are, you guys are looking for answers and in search of answers and are asking questions about it. Uh, I, don't, I don't see anything wrong with it. Yeah, it's, it's funny. There, there was another player – I'm not going to name names either, but um, another player that I wanted to get on the podcast and, and then the, 
the team's front office needed to give approval, and then all of a sudden it was radio silence. And yeah, so I've kind of, but that's not the first time that's happened though. So it's happened multiple times, and so I can only I can only wonder why. Yeah, I do think you guys, you know, you push the envelope a little bit. Uh, you push the envelope, I think, in a good way. Um, I think it's only going to make us better. And I say us as a country. Mm-hmm. I mean, otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, I mean, if it's if it's just a big handholding session and everybody's just you know playing nice to each other and just kind of being every if everybody's just a yes man, you don't improve like that. And so no. And I also think that people underestimate how big of an impact social media and things like these little podcasts and and, and whatnot, how, how big of an impact these really do have. Um, John, I was actually going to say, I think people have underestimated in our country how many of the groups of people like yourself, uh, three, four, three are around this country. Oh, totally. Definitely. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I think people have under, you know, we, we look at it always as because of the four major sports, as everyone says, uh, I, I think it's a naive way of looking at it because I think if you looked at soccer, football, then it's in the top four bar none. Oh, by, by a million miles, man. Right. And so that's where I think it's still, that's where the growth of our sport, um, the way we look at it, the way we talk about it, uh, the way it's perceived that that still has a long way to go Yeah, for me. Um, did (laughs) to go back to what I originally asked you, did, were you able to think of an example of how maybe things have changed? From that 1999 to 2009-ish? Like how yeah, I won't, I won't name the player's name, but I'll say this. He scored a ton of goals, um, was very successful uh, in about a three-year span, and got paid. And what I mean by that, got paid on the level of other players at that position. That was not happening from 99 to 2008. And it's not hard to figure it out, <laughs> but it's real easy to know that that player got paid and he could have got paid a ton more if he actually got an agent and didn't do it on his own. But that player got paid and that player would have never gotten paid five, six, seven years previous to that. Do you, do you think MLS is still learning? Oh, no this, doubt about it. At this point? Oh, no doubt about it. But let me ask you this, though, and that, that's actually a great, great way of asking the question. Do you think Arsenal's still learning? Do you think the EPL's still learning? Um, I think there's dif- levels of, yeah. of growth and love, right? Yeah, absolutely, in, 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 different, in different ways. Um, John, John, it's a great way to – it's actually a great way of looking at it because I'll say this, I, and I believe this. I said this, and I got a bunch of criticism from people um, – that look at MLS in a negative light, but I mean this. When you look at this past offseason, the amount of players that were signed, the age, the quality um, in their prime, and a big part of that was Atlanta United coming in. John, that's the, fir- that's the first real sign to me that MLS is learning, and they're learning for the better. Because the Pirlos and Lampards and Steven Gerrards of the world, if those players are still signed, then to me, there's growth is it's going to be stagnant. Mm-hmm. But the more Joseph Martinez, Miguel Almarones, um, those players coming over, 
in the prime of their South American career, John, then, then MLS has learned or is really starting to figure it out. And a big part of that was Atlanta. But the conversations I'm hearing behind closed doors for players that clubs are looking at, John, they're learning. Now, you and I could sit here and say, well, what took them so long? That's a different topic. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are. They are learning within, and always keep in mind, within the guidelines of a salary cap league. Which is interesting. <laughs> yes, that's, of that's course. A, that's, that's a whole other realm, too. But, John, John, this is where people frustrate me. If they don't think the owners are having discussions, if the salary cap is better for the league or not, those owners are having the discussion every, every time they get together. Mm-hmm. Every single time they get together, of course, they're, they're having the discussion. But right now they feel the salary cap with the designated player and TAM money is more beneficial than having an open league. Now, what we all need to remember is that U.S. soccer could say it's an open market. It's not an MLS decision, but we know it's complicated, and I get, I get it. It's kind of pointless to have the discussion because we all know the landscape right now. Um, but you asked me if they're learning. I will tell you this, yes. And when I started doing my job five years ago, and three years ago even, I had questions about it. This is the first year I went into it saying, if this is where the growth starts, then call me in five years because I am three years because I'm going to be – I'm pumped. I just look at it, John. I think it, with MLS the way it is right now, I think the more the younger you get and the more open-minded you are to becoming a player on the world market by, by selling players and having them move on, I think the, the, the more growth you'll see. I 1,000% agree with you, Taylor. And, and I don't think and, – and I think, John, to answer you, that's where the growth still has – and learning still has to come. It still has to come. There are plenty of technical directors, GMs, and coaches that have told me they're 100% open to selling their players, and the same amount have told me they're petrified that they won't be able to find a replacement. And I'll use – and it actually isn't Caleb Porter that's petrified, but I'm going to use Diego <laughs> Valeri as an – he's not. That's why I'm going to use this example. But if MLS owners, technical directors, and GMs and coaches think – that there's not another Diego Valeri in the world, they're mistaken. You can find another Diego Valeri. So if someone came in and offered Miguel Almiron this year, if you're Atlanta, let's say, let's say a Spanish club comes in and offers you five, ten, offers you millions of dollars for Miguel Almiron, you only got him for one year, I'd sell him in two seconds. Because what happens, John, is Every agent then in South America and every player then says, wait a minute, I don't have to go to Liga MX to get over there. I can go to MLS. And the other thing it does is the American player gets better because Miguel Amarone's in the prime of his career trying to prove himself. He's not 35 at the end where owners will still tell me those guys have value. I just look at it and go, well, I, I talk to the players every single game. The player their age competing for them in the same part of their career just has a different impact. Especially when you see Joseph Martinez playing in a World Cup qualifier for Venezuela. John, that's completely 100% different. I think. Maybe I'm wrong. 
No, I don't think you're wrong. I I, I think one of the, the things I'm most excited about too are, are academies like FC Dallas, like LA Galaxy, and those guys starting to really utilize their youth programs too. I think that's another, oh, that's another stone it's, that's that's starting to get uncovered, and and that's that's going to pay dividends, I think, as well. Well, because then it becomes the community communal aspect, right? So then your community sees that the one thing Oscar Perea has done phenomenally well. And I'd say LA as well. I, they're both the same, but I, Fernando Clavillo told me that they bring up a 14, 16, 18 year old. They bring him up all the time mm-hmm. just to see it. John, that's exactly what happens around the world. That player then sees the carrot. He sees the light at the end of the tunnel. He doesn't go to college. Mm-hmm. Now here's where I'm concerned, John. You didn't even ask me, but I'll give it to you. <laughs> all right, we have all these MLS academies this discussion, does MLS have a responsibility of developing an American player? National team eligible player? The answer is yes. If they do not, then why are those clubs paying all that money to U.S. Soccer's Development Academy? No, one, no one's answered that for me. I, I agree all with you. Those, all, those, all of those academies had an issue with Jurgen Klinsmann in his stance. But yet now, here we are, Jurgen's gone, and they're like, no, no, MLS can develop all they want, anyone they want. If we want 500 Diego Fagundeses that are not national team eligible, what's the point? And so many people disagree with me on this. I don't, I, I don't understand it. Then you, can't, you cannot be upset with Jurgen Klinsmann and his stance and then afterwards say, well, you don't have a responsibility to develop players for the U.S. national team. I don't get that. And I feel like that trend, you know, homegrown players are awesome. I love what FC Dallas is doing. I, I have no problem with it. L.A. Galaxy, New York Red Bulls. But, John, let me ask you the question. How many of those players can play for the U.S. national team? Uh, well, we is have- that the next step, maybe? Maybe I'm being too greedy right now. Mm. Or maybe it is, like you said, 16-year-olds getting in there. Maybe they get their citizenship. Well, I, I think the people that are listening to this podcast, at least, uh, I, I think there's probably a handful of them that stayed up late last night to watch three guys that, uh, oh, not just three guys, but but the USU-16s play against yep. New Guinea. And I think... By the way, the time-wasting from New Guinea was a joke. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, saw a but, bunch of tweets on it and then I watched 20 minutes of it. I was like, okay, now I get it. No, but go <laughs> ahead, finish your point. Cause it's been me talking the whole time. Yeah, no, I just, I, I think that, uh, I think that there are, are teams out there that, yeah, that is their goal is to produce national team players is to produce professional players. And that trend is still kind of new in our country. So, uh, that's where I kind of go back to my question, you know, are, are we learning or is MLS learning? And I think, yeah. And, and this is one example of that, um, where every, every Academy now should be, or should have the responsibility to produce national team players. And yeah. It, but on the other hand, they also have a responsibility to their fan base for sure. that if you do have 400 Diego Fagundes is, and they don't, you still have to play that player and produce that player. I get that. For sure. No for doubt sure. about it. But, I think it's an interesting discussion about development in our country um, 
and how we view this. And Jurgen was a focal point for a lot of it because he was the technical director and what he was saying. And I didn't agree wholeheartedly with st- stuff that he was saying, but he did open the Pandora's box of having the discussion. And I go back to the next phase of growth that I would love to see. You know, I had a great sit down speaking with Christian Pulisic and the German way and listening to the German way. If I, and, and I may be too biased to Germany in that way, but I do appreciate how they do it. The one thing that they do very well, and John, honestly, this is probably for the rest of the world, but Christian Pulisic is what everyone's talking about, is the media hold players accountable. They are heavily critical of Pulisic when he scores two goals. And so the growth of our country, I think, is when you can actually read after an MLS game and it's 3-2 New York Red Bulls versus the Portland Timbers, okay? And that player has a goal and two assists. And yet you read the article and there's actually some criticism. I think that's a huge part of our growth still. And it's, for the record, constructive criticism. I'm not saying you talk about a player, and I'll never do this, off the field and what. I'm not talking about that. But maybe I'm wrong on this. But I find it still to be too, God, and I hate using the word, but it's kind of soft when we talk about the game. Like, why can't we be happy with the result in Mexico, 1-1, and yet still be critical? Are, are reporters and, and media folk and guys on, the, on TV, are they allowed to be critical, or are they told yes. not to be? No, no, no. They're, they're, no, they're allowed to. That's one of the things of, of John, part of your – I hate saying it because I feel like I'm part of your guys' demographic too because a lot of what you guys say too I'm interested in I believe in. But one of the misconceptions of what I do, I'm not told anything to say. Now, I'm not doing my job if I don't tell the full story when I report something. When I give my opinion, John, I can give my opinion and in the, you know, the results afterwards, they are what they are. When I report something, I report, but no one's ever called me or told me this is what you have to say. That doesn't happen. As a written reporter, I don't know that. So those guys would have to speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think they're told you can't be critical of the game. I just, I'm saying in general, in general of our soccer society, which is massive in this country, why is it so separate? I don't understand why I can't go on sports center and say, no, it's a great result for the United States, but I'm still waiting for the opportunity where the United States doesn't go to Mexico and give up 76% of possession. Or if they do give that up, they do get four or five quality chances. Now, honestly, Sunday night, they did get those chances. That was the first time in a long time where you could say the United States had three legit scoring opportunities. Bobby Wood, Michael Bradley hits the post, Omar Gonzalez on a header. But anyone that watched the game, we're naive if we're also not saying, oh no, it was 76% possession, a Mexican team that had one foot out the door going Confederations Cup, that's where that that's where I still think growth can happen. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but 
I, I, I just hope we get to that point because when I read Kicker Magazine after Dortmund wins 3-2 and Pulisic had a great game, there's still, well, he could be better here or they could be better here. I still read that. 100% agree, man. All right, you're you're over your uh, your time limit. <laughs> yeah, I did, John. I had no idea what we were going to do. And for the <laughs> listeners, John said, "Do you want to know what we're talking about?" And I said, "No, I didn't know you were going to ask me about my career." I got, I'm a little surprised and shocked. Yeah, man. Everybody, and that's why that uh, people have to understand when they come on the show, it's not going to be like an all-out attack. <laughs> oh, I, I hope you didn't feel like that. <laughs> no, God, no, no. I didn't. I didn't cool. feel like that at all. But I was. Um, I was. I'm a little surprised. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's well, a story that I don't. I don't try to talk about it because uh, I know the viewers at home when they watch a game, the last thing they want to hear is, "Oh, well, when I played or did this, my my bosses hate that I don't talk about it." But whatever. No, I'd rather just call. The game. I, I think ab- absolutely the opposite. I think people are are super interested in in learning about like having to make those moves and and what actually went into you know, negotiations and, and maybe the, the holdups or, or whatnot. I, I think people are genuinely interested in that. And, and we've done other interviews with other, with other people as well that kind of shed light on what it is like today, what it's like at the youth level, the pro level. So when you wrap all these stories together, it actually, it paints a pretty good picture. So, yeah, I just, and I also think John, and I wasn't obviously doing a three, four, three podcast when I was 12, 14, 18 and whatnot, but <laughs> What I will say is this, is what I've learned doing this job is there are, I mean, there's way more educated people on this sport. Like you cannot bullshit anyone anymore. Nope. You can't. And that's what's in, I love it because one, it keeps me accountable, um, on my job and what I do. But two, I actually learn. You know, you learn different viewpoints or different ways to look at it. But the moment I hold that ESPN microphone, I can't go on. And I'm not saying they did in the past, but John, let's be honest. You probably could. And the 94 World Cup and the 98 World Cup and the 2000 Euros, no one knew. Mm -hmm. But now you can watch any game in the world. You know what, Taylor? I think one one thing that is is a testament to exactly what you're saying is, and I can't remember the guy's name, but one... Uh, station tried to nominate this guy to be like the voice of the World Cup or something like that, and it just completely backfired. They tried to bring in a guy that wasn't a soccer guy, and yep. and that backfired in their face. And that that is a testament to exactly what you just said: is that you, we don't we don't want that as as fans as as people that respect the game. We're not we're not looking for a bullshitter. No, no, you're not anymore. No, and it's actually you want to talk about learning and growth. That's it right there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, dude, this was a blast. Hey, um, but, but while, while I still have you, I guess, I, I still would love to have a good conversation with you about concussions, only because I suffered from some, some really bad ones myself. I don't know, maybe in the future if we can jump on like another 40-minute call. John, do you still have symptoms? I still do. I don't talk what about it very often. What symptoms do you have? Uh, <laughs> we don't have to do it on the podcast. Yeah, it's, it's, it's rough to talk about. I, I actually I, I haven't talked about it in a long time. Um, but I, I, I would love to, uh, I would love to talk to you about it and, and have like a more in-depth conversation about it for sure. Oh, no doubt about it. And I actually believe John, that we could, as a country lead the charge on our sport, preserving the sport and the essence of the sport while also evolving regarding head injuries. 
See, that's because I think I, I think if we properly teach the sport, and, and you go around the world, and I, so, but first and foremost, you need to reach out to me and tell me what you're still dealing with because I think I could probably help. Yeah, for sure, man. I, I definitely will. That's gonna go in the DM. <laughs> All right, brother. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, Taylor. All right, man, I appreciate it. Best of luck, and um, I look forward to hearing from you. All right, man, you too. All right, thanks, John. All right, bye. All right, thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 Podcast. If you would like to find more episodes of the 343 Podcast, or if you'd just like to poke around and check out some of the older articles or videos or maybe our free or premium online coaching course, you can find all of that at 343coaching.com. That's the number three, number four, number three, coaching.com. We also offer a couple live in-person experiences, one of those being our coaching summit and the other one, which is our players club. Both of those take place in Southern California. And if you'd like to join us for either of those programs, you can find out all the details on 343coaching.com. All right. With that, I hope you enjoyed this. Taylor, it was a blast. If you're still listening to this, thank you. And we will catch you guys next time here on the 343 Podcast.